0: Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we share how to decide what's really important in life, how self-care can actually lead to massively increased productivity, and how you can put away the guilt of not working hard enough while being more productive with our guest, Denise Gosnell, and I'm excited to tell you that my producer, Austin, is going to be joining me for this interview. So get ready for a great conversation. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we shared how to deal with self-doubt and what you should do if you don't feel like you belong. We explored the power of kindness and how to build your kindness muscle, as well as much more with our previous guest, Gabriella Van Ray. Now for our interview with Denise. Denise Gosnell is a serial entrepreneur, business strategist, lawyer, and author. She owns Vacation Effect, Inc. and Gosnell & Associates. She is frequently asked to speak on her wide range of expertise at events, interviews, and shows. Denise is the author and co-author of eight business and technology books, including the soon-to-be-released Vacation Effect book. She's been featured on media outlets across the web. Denise, welcome to the Science of Success.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I'm, I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, we're really excited to have you on the show today, and I'd love to start out with your story and how you came to some of the revelations in The Vacation Effect, this idea of somebody who was a really successful serial entrepreneur, and you were working super hard, and then you really had a breakthrough and a shift that transformed the way you think about life and business and and productivity. So I'd love to hear that journey and how it shaped your thinking.
3: I'd like to say that there was this magic epiphany that I had on my own and that, you know, I just came to realize it from my own wisdom. But sometimes we get thrown curveballs in our lives, don't we? <laughs> so that was what happened with me. You know, in June of 2011, I was, you know, running three companies, working like crazy, you know, I'm a recovering workaholic, which that's what, you know, what my story will be about today. And I had this house fire where literally struck by lightning on June 20th, 2011 at 8 a.m. And my husband and I didn't even know we were on fire until there's this knock at the front door, you know, and I go to the front door and there's this fireman saying, hey, your house is on fire. We're like, okay, we we knew we were struck by lightning, but we didn't know we were on fire yet. (laughs) And we were trying to figure that out. But then what was so interesting, Matt, was he asked me a question. It brought a pit in my stomach because How I answered him made me realize I wasn't living my life in alignment with what really mattered. And is it okay if I share the question that he asked?
0: Yeah, please do.
3: So he said, what do you want us to retrieve in the next five minutes before your house is destroyed? Like... Can you imagine like only having five more minutes in your house and having to pick what you want to have them go grab? So, you know, that was the question that I was faced with. And how I answered him really shocked me and made me realize I wasn't living my life in alignment with what mattered. And what I asked him for were things like my then five year old daughter's stuffed animal bunny. You know, bunny was like a member of the family. And my uh, wedding photos from 25 years ago when we got married in Jamaica and my grandmother's blanket she made me as a child. Those were the things I had him retrieve. And it's like, What do those represent? They represent the people in my life that really matter to me and the memories, not the stuff, not the artwork from Italy on the wall or the jewelry in the jewelry box. All that stuff can be replaced. So that was just a really eye opening moment for me where I vowed that day that things were going to change. I was no longer going to work for just the sake of money to pay for stuff that I didn't care about. But it was tricky because I also realized that I really like nice things. It's so interesting. We're like, fight with ourselves. Like, I like nice things. I want to provide vacations and a nice life for my family, but not at the expense of never being with them and being present with what really mattered. Does that make sense? It's like that interesting conflict.
0: It's something that I think about all the time. and I, and I think many people struggle with the same balance of striving and achieving on one end and yet, appreciating on the other end and and how do you stride that really tough balance beam and figure out where you land on it. So I'm curious to see how you how you struck that balance.
3: Yeah, so it actually took me five years from the fire to figure it out. Like that day I vowed that I'm no longer going to neglect my family and the people that I care about for the sake of money. It's like, I will figure out this balance thing if, if there is such a thing, you know, how to have more money, how to have good money and plenty of free time without having to pick one over the other. That was always what I wanted. But if I'd work more, the free time would suffer, the family would suffer, I would suffer. And then if I, you know, worked less, the revenue would suffer. It's like, surely there's a way to do both. So, you know, I just stumbled my way along for five years after the fire and I just kept experiencing one or the other. It was either one would suffer or the other would suffer. And then interestingly, I went to this meditation retreat, we were supposed to come with one question we wanted answered. And what was interesting was the question that I wanted the answer to was how can I have this schedule I've always wanted without my revenue suffering. And during that meditation, it was like, you know, a God again, answering my call or my higher self or whoever was talking to me, you know, the same person that gave me or being that gave me that lightning bolt, from, you know, trying to help give me the wake up call just whispers in my ear or like I heard it like somebody whispering in my ear. And it was and when I asked that question, Denise, what are you waiting for? All you have to do is decide and make today what you want tomorrow to be. So that's interesting. Like Make today what tomorrow to be. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm scared as hell to like have the three day a week work schedule that I've always wanted permanently. But, you know, as an entrepreneur, I can commit to just doing a little experiment. You know, what if I just do a 30 day experiment for eight days What if I just block off eight business days for the schedule I've always dreamed of, which was having a three-day work week? where I had Tuesdays and Thursdays. I call it my Tuesday, Thursday schedule to do whatever makes me happy, you know, and we're not working in the trenches of the company. That's what I dreamed up. I said, someday I'm going to do that. I'd said that someday for 20 freaking years, right? (laughs) So after that epiphany, I'm like, all right, I'll try it for one month and we'll see what happens. So I went back to the hotel that night. I sent out a bunch of emails, rescheduled a bunch of meetings, carved out Tuesdays and Thursdays for the next four weeks. And it was really surprising what happened. It was painful at first. I realized I was addicted to work and it was like I found myself resisting and I felt really guilty at first. And I was like, where's this guilt coming from? So I had to deal with the emotion of the guilt. And we can talk about that more if you want to. But after a couple of weeks of like resisting the urge to jump back into work, I'm like, no, no, I'm going to give myself this free time. Just just an experiment. I don't have to do it forever. Gave myself permission to do it. What happened after like weeks two, three and four, each week got a little better. I realized that I was wasting so much time. I was being inefficient with how I was using the time I was spending. And after the end of 30 days, I decided to extend it for another 30 and then another 30. And before I knew it, I decided after 90 days to make it a way of life. And there's a lot more of the nuances that, of course, go into that. But that's the high level of where I actually figured out how to grow by subtraction by removing from my to do list instead of adding to it.
0: I love that idea of improving your life by subtraction. I'm curious before we dig into that, when you took that leap, I have a couple questions in there and they're interrelated, but did your results suffer? Let's start with that.
3: So, at first, the results were suffering because I was feeling guilty and so I was, you know, working through the kinks, but overall no. I ended up making the most money I'd ever made in my life that year that I had worked the least, and I've been able to maintain and sustain that.
0: That's really interesting. And I mean, I've heard many stories like that. But the next piece that I always think about, and this is honestly my own internal dialogue that I think about a lot too, which is, let's just say you can be that productive on three days a week. What about if you just worked all five days a week at that level of productivity and then got exponentially more results? How do you think about that balance and when to stop and versus when to keep pushing it?
3: I've thought about that, and I think that the reason why I've gotten more done with less time is because of the self-care that it has allowed me to do that I wasn't allowing myself to do before. So, like, before when I was working 80 hours a week, just because I was grinding at 80 hours a week doesn't mean I was doing 80 hours worth of quality work. You know, when you're exhausted and you're staring at the computer, you make a lot of mistakes or you know, you're you're not solving problems from the purview of having a clear head and making good decisions. I was making bad decisions when I was working all the time. You make mistakes or you're not thinking clearly, you make bad decisions. So, you know, what I found was that it's like allowing space between the notes. You know, it's like when you give yourself the space, you know, have some thinking time, like on my freedom days, which is what I call those Tuesdays and Thursdays when I'm not traveling, you know, the days that I'm not working in the trenches of the company, I solve problems in the company that I'm not even trying to solve. Like if I'm out hanging out with friends or visiting my mom or just doing whatever makes me happy. I can't tell you how many times I've solved some of the biggest problems when I wasn't trying to. I'm sure you've experienced that before, too, in all your companies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's actually some really interesting neuroscience around that whole idea of they call it creative incubation in the science research, but basically this idea of feeding information into your subconscious and then consciously focusing on something completely different. And then when you're away, you often have these breakthrough insights.
3: Right. And that's the more I gave myself the space, the more I realized that was a much needed space in order to be actually more effective as an entrepreneur. But don't get me wrong. Like with the way I have my schedule structured now to run my three companies three days a week, like it's like when you're about to go on vacation and that's where actually the name of my company, the vacation effect was born. It's like, you know how you're super productive right before you go on vacation when you get like a month's worth of work done in the two days before you leave. You know, I'm sure most people have experienced that. It's like, why is that? It's because You're forcing yourself to focus on the critical few things, the things that really matter that have to be handled because you're going to be gone and you magically figure out how to get it done faster. And so now in my three-day-a-week schedule, it's like I'm doing that every single week of my life. I'm forcing that, I call it forced hyper-efficiency into my schedule where I'm like, okay, I'm not available tomorrow to work on it. I literally write the day off where I'm not allowed to work in the trenches of the company unless it's a true emergency. And that's you know, very rarely, maybe once a month, is there a true emergency that would justify that? And it's like for two hours or something. But what happens though is that if you give yourself permission to say, you know what, that day is no longer available. It's amazing when you do that, what else do you have to figure out? You have to focus on what really matters and you have to get rid of a lot of stuff. That's why I say grow by subtraction. You have to figure out how to eliminate all the shit that wasn't going to produce results anyway.
2: Denise, I want to jump in here because I'm hoping you can help me with something personally. So, you know, this sounds great, you know, having a full Tuesday, Thursday for kind of like freedom time. But as someone who really, you know, I don't have really a set schedule or a certain amount of vacation time, but I really find when I do make this time, It's really hard to stay present, right? Because I'll glance at my inbox and all of a sudden I go down this huge hole that like pulls me out of the time that I'm supposed to be spending with my family or friends or doing something else. I'm curious, you know, how do you remain fully present on those freedom days when you're not working on a day where like 99% of everyone else is?
3: Yeah. So I just don't open my email, but actually it's, that's not easy to do. It takes some training. Like I close the email app. On my freedom days, I try not to even boot up my computer unless I need to because I'm writing a book or I'm, you know, doing something fun online, which sometimes I'll do that on a freedom day, you know. So for me, like a lot of times I might be working on, you know, starting a new company or researching something that's totally fun that I never would have to- time to do. My only rule for myself is just that it'd be something fun and that it's not in the trenches of the company. But it doesn't mean it can't be something that others would deem work. But to me, it's just pure joy. Does that make sense? But to answer your question, it's just a matter of like not going there, but that takes some practice.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, just to clarify there. So what you said kind of resonates with me is, you know, there are definitely tasks that are quote unquote work, but that I just enjoy doing. Right. And there are also things that I could probably delegate, but I don't mm-hmm. because they're fun to me. They let me kind of do something that I may not be like an expert at, but I can kind of tinker and learn a little bit. So to summarize, I guess what I hear you saying is it is okay to do those things that may be work as long as you're enjoying them. And they're part of that kind of like freedom day.
3: Yeah. So for me as an entrepreneur, and I know a lot of your listeners are not entrepreneurs. So me as an entrepreneur, that's my criteria is I just don't want it to be in the trenches of the company. I want it to be something that lets me work on the company or myself or my family or, you know, whatever makes me happy. Like, what can I do today that really lights me up? Because if I don't give myself the time to do it, it's not going to happen. It's going to be one of those someday maybes as I call them. But yeah, so that's the distinction that I make. Some people might call it work, but I don't. It's like pure love, you know, pure joy of the stuff that I do. And I just try to make sure it's not in the trenches of the company because then you get sucked into that rabbit hole that you're talking sure. about. For those people listening that are are not entrepreneurs, you can also apply the principles of this within your own job with your boss and in your team. And, you know, one example is, you know, if you can show your boss that you get as much done in three days as you used to in six, you can negotiate things like you can say to your boss, like, hey, what if I, you know, work remotely, which, you know, some people are doing that more and more now, you know, for a variety of reasons. It's like, uh, so what if you would negotiate a way to work from home and then you say, if I can show you that I can do X, Y, and Z and get this result, can I have a four-day work week or whatever the case is that you're looking for? So you can totally negotiate that. I did when I was an employee. I negotiated that as a young software developer back before I became an entrepreneur and I totally negotiated it. It was like the beginnings of my first test into this world.
2: <laughs> it's so funny too. you know. We had an interview a number of years ago with a gentleman by the name of Chris Voss. He was saying some of his wisdom was – you know, everything in life is a negotiation. And he obviously takes it like really far. Like, you know, you can go to Starbucks and, you know, there are stories out there of people getting their latte at Starbucks half off just for kind of asking for it. Right. But Mm -hmm. I do think it's funny what you said. I mean, I've experienced that as well in a past life. It almost seems like I worked a fortune 50 company and it was very rigid. I mean, it was like vacation time was monitored very strictly. If you weren't in the office by eight, if you were gone for lunch for more than 45 minutes, if you left any time before, five. It was all being watched. But there was this group of like three people there who would get in at like four in the morning, but they'd be able to leave at like one or they'd have this just like they wouldn't be in the office for a number of days. Right. And then finally, you know, I would ask Anthony, my boss at the time, I was like, hey, you know, where's Mark? And he'd be like, well, you know, Mark's been here and he's demonstrated the fact that, you know, he can kind of work from home and get just as much done. So we don't really monitor his time. And like for me, it like blew my mind. And it was like, well, how do I get there? But the issue was then I went back to my cubicle and I would like socialize this. And I was like, do you guys know that you could do this? And everybody was like, oh, that's not true. Like, there's no way. Just because it wasn't an option that was like readily presented, they didn't really rise to the level of action or the challenge to like demonstrate that they could actually handle what it was that they wanted. You know, everyone complained about being there, but no one really worked hard enough to say like, I can do this on a beach. Give me a shot.
3: Right. Exactly. And that's exactly what I did. And this was over 20 years ago, back when nobody was doing this whole work from home thing, Internet- wasn't that great? I just made myself so valuable to them that I made it where they couldn't say no. It's like, and that's people don't realize you can absolutely negotiate that. And Chris Voss, of course, is a master negotiating teacher. So that's cool that he shared that with you guys. But you know, the other part of the story though is I don't want everybody to think that you just magically reduce your schedule and everything just magically falls into place. There's more that actually has to be put into place in order to make it sustainable. At least, you know, it was for me as an entrepreneur. And, you know, so the forced hyper efficiency part where you limit the amount of time that you're willing to spend, that helps you focus on what really matters, but the way you sustain it. Is also by putting into place other things like being smarter, you know, being effective in how you actually use your time, goal setting in a way that when you are working in the company, you're working on the right things. Delegating better to your team if you're a supervisor or an entrepreneur, you know, having standard operating procedures so that you can clone your knowledge where, you know, other people can do it without you having to be the one doing it. Like there's different little pieces to the puzzle that then make it to where you can make that schedule permanent. Does that make sense?
0: That's great. And I want to dig into forced hyper efficiency and some of those other strategies. But before we get into some of the tactical stuff, I want to come back to the guilt. Because to me, that is one of the biggest barriers to anyone taking a step like this, or even if you have control over your time and and your schedule, often that's what really ropes you back into grinding and, and hustling, pushing, working really hard. How do you overcome all of the guilt and all of that baggage associated with being addicted to work?
3: Yeah. So first of all, Matt, that's a great question because it was the biggest obstacle for me to overcome and every single entrepreneurial client that I've worked with that I've had to help them overcome. That is the one thing they all had in common was getting past the guilt. You know, we have this culture in North America, for example, we idolize the people who grind all the time, as you mentioned the word grind. And it's like we got, you know, the Gary V's and the late Steve Jobs and you know Elon Musk and those guys, and it's like and Elon Musk, you know had this tweet back and it was like November of I think it was twenty nineteen He's like, nobody ever changed the world on forty hours a week like that's an example, and I respect Mr. Musk for you know, for all this cool stuff that he's done and the technology and whatnot, but that attitude is why entrepreneurs feel guilty to answer your question. So it's like it's so ingrained in our culture. Workaholism has become the respected form of addiction. Like it's a badge of honor if you don't take your vacation time. It's a badge of honor who worked the most hours, and that's just messed up. So that's why we've got this deep subconscious belief that we're less than if we're not working all the time. So the way I dealt with it and that I've helped my clients deal with it, is to catch myself. And I do it less and less now that I've just given myself permission to let the guilt go. But at first I had to just acknowledge when it was happening. Like when I'd have that tendency, you know, to Austin, your point about, you know, picking the resistance to pick up the phone on a free day, you know, I just have to be like, wait a minute, should I feel guilty if I can get as much done in three days as I used to in six? Is there logically anything to feel guilty about? And of course, logically, the answer is no. So I have to remind myself of that question over and over again. But then, of course, you've got to actually take the steps that it takes to pull that off, right? It's not just saying it. You've got to actually learn to be effective in those three days as you used to in six or whatever your version of that is that, you know, for those who may be listening, you can have any variation of that that you want. That's just my example. So the first step is to acknowledge that the guilt is there. And then the second step is to say, is this really true? And once you say, no, this really isn't true, then you can start taking steps to dismiss it and give yourself permission to say, you know what, that's bullshit. I'm going to call bullshit on myself and say, I'm going to take this Freedom Day without guilt, but I'm going to honor it by the next day at work. I'm going to prove that I did get a lot done and the results were there. So it's kind of like a deal I make with myself to get over it, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I like the idea of almost using it as fuel when you come back to work and saying okay now i really have to justify the fact that i took yesterday off
3: right that's how my recovering workaholic mind gets around the guilt is like no no logically if i get as much done there's nothing to feel guilty about so i'm going to give myself that wonderful freedom day and i take that wonderful freedom day and i have it you know i have great time and then i'm back to work refreshed and you know what it's funny how i'm like okay i'm ready to rock and roll and then i focus on okay what do i need to do today that is going to produce the results and I know I got tomorrow as, a, as another Freedom Day. So, man, I better produce today because I'm not going to be working tomorrow. It's just interestingly motivating. It's like lighting a match and knowing you're going to have to get out of the room quickly because it's about to be on fire. So it really does help instill that forced hyper-efficiency.
0: So let's dig into that. Tell me a little bit more about the concept of forced hyper-efficiency and, and how we can start applying it.
3: So force cipher efficiency is where you put circumstances around yourself that forces you to focus on what really matters and ignore the stuff that doesn't. And so that's what I would define it as. And then so one example of how you can do that is using a timer. So a lot of times when I'm doing a task on one of the days I'm working in the trenches of the company, I'll set a timer for half of what I think the task is going to take. So let's say I think it's a 30 minute activity. I'll set the timer for 15 minutes knowing that it's a 30 minute task but what's interesting is like there's this little clock ticking you know I usually I actually use a timer that's not my iPhone timer because I, that way I'm not like looking at text messages or something that's coming in I use one of those just battery operated timers and I watch it clicking down what's interesting though is even though I don't normally complete the task in this example the 15 minutes I usually complete it in less time than the 30 in than I originally intended so maybe I get that 30 minute task done in 20 or 25 because the timer was clicking but if it weren't I would have taken 30 or longer. But isn't that interesting? Like, I encourage everybody listening to try this out for themselves. There's something magical going on in our brain when we set this timer there for half the amount of time we think it's gonna take. It's like our brain magically figures out how to get it done faster. And even though I have to hit reset on the timer and I let it continue, when I continue it, I don't continue it for another 15. I only continue it for like three or five minutes. Does that make sense? I'm like, I'm like psyching my brain out when I'm doing this. It's a little game I play with myself.
0: Yeah, that's a great tip and in many ways both really comes to the concept of Parkinson's law, which I want to explore a little bit more, but also just demonstrates that there's so much dead time, so much wasted effort, so many times where we just get distracted or spend 5 minutes doing this or 2 minutes or we get up and walk around or whatever, but when you create those really powerful constraints and guidelines, you force yourself to create the results much more quickly without wasting any time.
3: Exactly. And you're right about, you know, Parkinson's law, you know, the idea that the time that it takes you to finish a project, you know, fills to expand however long you allocated for the project. So if I give myself 30 minutes, well, guess what? It's going to take 30 minutes. But if I give myself 15, knowing it's a 30 minute task, somehow my brain magically figures out how to get it done in just a little over 15 minutes. So I can't explain why it happens. I just know that that's what happens to me. And it's like this intense focus that I think what you said, Matt, is true. We don't goof around when we know the clock is ticking. We don't get up and take the break or do whatever. We're like, okay, I'm just going to focus here for 15 minutes and knock this out. And I may only need three or four minutes after that to get it done. And I'm, okay, great. I'm done. Now I can take that break. I give myself rewards, too, when I meet different milestones. I think that's important as well. To me, my reward is having the Freedom Days every week. It's like, all right, I'm going to be really focused and get this stuff done. And by God, I'm going to reward myself with those two Freedom Days.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: Yeah, that's great. And it's funny, I literally had an experience earlier today where I, I had a call coming up and I had... Just under 20 minutes to knock out a task that I thought would probably take me. I didn't actually set a timer. I didn't even think about this concept, but I wanted to knock this out because if I didn't do it then, then I would be busy the rest of the day. And it was really important tasks that I wanted to try to knock out before I got stuck on a series of conference calls. And I somehow, like one minute before the call started, I was hitting send on the last email to knock that out. I guess it's just a personal experience that really tied in exactly with what you're talking about.
3: Yeah. And how did that make you feel? You're like, man, I just pulled that off that you probably thought it was going to take you 40 minutes or an hour or something.
0: It would have taken me an hour if I had sat down and said that I needed to do it because I would have been really overthinking it and like double checking everything. And I was just like, I got to get these emails out like bang, bang, just hit and send and like, okay, if there's a typo or whatever, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day.
3: And see, that's the thing. Like so much of the stuff we waste countless hours on doesn't even matter. That's key what you just said there. That's what I love about forced hyper-efficiency. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying to become shitty quality. That's not what I'm talking about. I pride good quality work when it matters. But there are many times when it really doesn't matter. Like when it matters, I'll prove something three times. When it doesn't matter, like we don't need to overanalyze this stuff as much as we do. If there's one little typo, it really doesn't matter. You know, unless it's like a legal complaint or like a bank transaction, a little typo doesn't usually matter that much where you don't need to proof it six times, you know?
2: Denise, one thing I was noticing in some of the research that kind of grabbed me a little bit, and I think just based on the conversation, I've kind of gathered this, but what's a someday maybe?
3: Yeah. So to me, a someday maybe is all that stuff that you tell yourself, we've all done this before, someday When I have more time, I'm going to, you know, travel more someday when I have more money, I'm going to, you know, donate more money to charity someday, you know, all those some days that you're going to get around to when this other thing happens. And so, you know, to me, I call those the someday maybes. It's like either give yourself permission to bring them into now because you're either going to wait till retirement when you don't have the money to do it or you're too sick or old to even do it anyway. So like, why not find a way to bring them into the now in some fashion, even if it's not in the way you've dreamed of, there's always a way to bring some version of that thing that would make you happy. So someday maybe it's just delayed gratification that you're delaying for no good reason.
2: So one key thing you just touched on there that I think is really important is you said, you know, you bring these things into the present, but maybe not in the way you dreamed. So if I have this goal of something that I want to accomplish that I've been putting off and then, you know, when I do have a little free time, I'm like, man, I need to get around to that. But I know that the way that I've envisioned it, the way that I've dreamed would involve too much work or too much time that I don't have right now to do. When you would look at pulling a someday maybe into the present, how do you sit down and kind of think about different ways to approach it that might not be kind of the standard one, two, three that you had previously envisioned?
3: Yeah, so that's a great question. So a simple example is like, what if somebody wanted to be a master guitarist, right? You're not going to become a master guitarist overnight, but what are you going to do? You're going to learn to play the first note. So guess what? You could book yourself an online class to learning how to pick up the guitar and play a few notes, play a basic song. So that's an example of, you know, we're chunking it down and maybe your goal is to travel the world on some three month long cruise that touches every continent. Well, guess what? You know, like whatever your resources are now, let's say you could only afford to do a weekend getaway to somewhere in your own country, to where you could then go see this performance of somebody talking about traveling the world, where you could then plan out more, what do I want those countries to look like? Which stops what I take? Like It just brings joy. The act of pursuing something that you have always dreamed of, even the planning of it brings you immense joy when you don't even realize it.
2: I think that's so true. and I think sort of like a meta point in there is really kind of Breaking things down are like bite-sized actions, right? Like you don't have mm-hmm. to be on stage with Mick Jagger shredding the guitar in a month. Taking those little steps kind of brings the joy of pursuing that long-term goal into the present. So you enjoy doing it, but at the same time, it's a stepping stone and thus knocking out one of the steps towards that big dream.
3: That's so true. What you just said is, is perfect. And it's part of what people don't realize. The joy comes from the journey of getting to the thing not from arriving at the thing. The joy comes from actually the journey of getting there. You'll get as much joy from planning the trip as you do from actually like going on the trip. At least I do. For most people, Mm -hmm. that's true. Like the journey of taking the lessons and becoming better at guitar or, you know, whatever the thing is, is there one you've always been telling yourself that you want to dissect?
2: You know, I think it's interesting too, before I've got a number of dreams and things up in my head. Something you touched on, I want to make sure we highlight real quick is that if you don't enjoy the journey, then it's probably not something you actually want, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I have friends who went out into L.A. for like two years, three years after college, and, and they went out and they were wanting to become actresses and actors, but like they hated auditioning, right? Like they just didn't want to do it, and it was like... Looking on the outside in, I was like, well, you know, maybe that's just not what you actually want. So I think, you know, we really need to take some time to evaluate these goals of like who we kind of see ourselves as and say, like, is that really an honest depiction of what I really want? You know, like everyone wants to be sitting on the red carpet and going up and accepting an award and get all this praise and recognition. But you know, you don't see the downtimes. You don't see like messing up on stage, forgetting your lines, standing on stage in front of thousands of people and kind of blanking at the teleprompter. Like, you know, you if you can't find the joy in the struggle, then you probably not only don't deserve the dream, but you probably wouldn't even like it when you got there because you'd be so stressed out from the energy you expended getting there.
3: Yeah, I think that's a, a key point that you just highlighted. And that's why one of the things that I work with my clients and as i mentioned you know either give yourself permission to let them go cuz you're just lying to yourself you you aren't going to enjoy it anyway and you're never going to get around to it or bring it into the now if you're really serious about it bring it into the now in some way and i'll give you a quick example that everybody can understand i used to always have a someday maybe that said someday maybe i'll learn how to be a great cook you know like i can cook a basic recipe but i don't enjoy it and i've never gotten you know i just don't do it i hire a chef or my husband will cook or we'll warm something up in the microwave or the oven. But gourmet cooking, I, I'd always said someday maybe I'll get around to that. But once I really realized it and I analyzed it to the point you were just making – I realized, you know what, I don't ever want to be a gourmet cook. If I'm really honest with (laughs) myself, I like cooking for the holidays, like with my family making cookies and you know, like the active, that's more like the family thing and just doing it for fun. But like I gave myself permission to mark that one off the list and say, you know what, I'm going to let it go. I no longer have that someday maybe of wanting to be a gourmet cook. I just choose to cook whenever it makes me happy. That was what I gave myself permission.
2: Yeah, it's like, you know, the idea of being able to cook up this incredible, like, southern living kind of incredible spread is great. But then when you're there, you're like, man, it's hot in here. Like, I don't want to do with this right now. I don't want
3: to do these dishes. I mean, this is a lot of work. <laughs> I don't want to do the grocery shopping that goes with it. Just send me the stuff.
2: So something else, like while we're on this train, I was in the research we were looking through. There's something that I've really, really struggled with in the past. And I'm really hoping you can kind of help me work out. Are you Are you game to maybe help me with something?
3: Sure. Let's do it. <laughs>
2: So you talk about life purpose and power words, and this is something that I have personally struggled with a number of times is to kind of sit down and map out my life purpose. And I think kind of a a subset of like my life purpose is core values, do's and don'ts. And all the experts we've interviewed, I mean, like, I think, you know, it's come up many, many times, like. Your decision-making even becomes less stressful or less tiresome when you have this list of like, you know, values and purpose. And then any decision you have to make, you can say, does this align or does this conflict with my life purpose and my life values? And it's an easy answer, right? Mm -hmm. And I find myself sitting down and I'm looking at a blank page and I'm like, you know, I've tried to do it in the morning. I've tried to do it at night. I've tried to do it in all manner of different moods. I find that I can do it and I can sit down and I can write it, but I have a really hard time sticking to it. And I feel as though it'll be a season and I'll kind of grow out of that season or an opportunity will come up that maybe doesn't directly conflict with my values, but maybe isn't super aligned and I'll kind of run with that. So I'm just curious, like based on, you know, your work and your life purpose and how you came to discover what that is maybe you can help me kind of craft how I can best put together sort of like my life purpose and my mission statement.
3: That's a great question. And I love talking about that because, you know, I'm on a mission to help people have a framework that they can use to really make that easy for them to implement in their lives. Cause The big thing for me is I was always struggling with the whole life purpose thing, and I researched everybody's definition of life purpose, and I finally came to something that felt good to me. And some of your listeners, I think, will really love this, and and if you don't love what I have to say, that's okay, too. If you have a religious or other belief where you disagree with me, that's totally cool. Take the part you love and ignore the part you don't. But so I believe your life purpose, and you're going to love this, it's really simple, is simply to live in joy. I believe God put us on this planet, and the way that we live in joy Is when we are the happiest when we're doing the things that we're best at and that we would do whether anybody paid us or not. So, I'll give you an example to answer your question on how this applies to me and how it can apply to other people. So, what I recommend people do in my life purpose framework is that they identify what are the top three things you love doing whether anybody pays you or not. And it's independent of any company. So, for me, mine are I love learning new things, I love problem solving, you know, slash simplifying the complicated, because those are kind of two sides of the same coin. And then I love helping others. And I do that in all three of my companies. I recommend people pick what are the three things you love doing. It doesn't have to be three. I just recommend three. It's easier to name it with the power word and to use this framework if you have just three of them. So what I then recommend is once you identify those three things that you love doing that are agnostic to any business or job, and it's just, you know, what, what is it I love doing, whether anybody pays me or not. And then what's one word? I call it a power word that I can give that as a name. So that I can just kind of remember what those three bullets are by just thinking of that one word. So for me, my power word is amplifier, because what does an mm-hmm. amplifier do? It's a piece of equipment that takes in a bunch of noise, which for me is like learning new things. And it does some stuff and, you know, to that noise and it outputs something beautiful. So to me, that's an amplifier symbolizes learning th- new things. You know, when it transmits the stuff and outputs something beautiful, it's simplifying and problem solving. And then others are enjoying this beautiful output of it that's helping others. So to me, that word encompasses all three of those. So now that I have my power word, I can be like, anytime I have one of my companies or I have a new opportunity or a decision I'm being asked to make, I can ask myself, does this let me be an amplifier? Does this let me problem solve, You know, simplify, help others or learn new things? And if not, then the answer is either no, we're not going to do it as a company. Or is there somebody else on the team that this is their jam that they mm-hmm. I should let them take on? Does that make sense? Like, that's the big picture of how I go about that.
2: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, Amplify is such a great one. I'm sitting here trying to think of mine. I'm like, I can't, I can't one up Amplify. That's pretty good. I love the piece, too, about how, you know, finding someone else that is one of their three things, if it's not one of yours. Cause I think that that's where our ego can come into play a lot of times is like, you know, I might be able to do something and I might want, at times, I might want credit for it. I might want to sit down and figure it out. But the whole time I'm like thinking about other things I got to do. But, you know, you'll soldier on because ego drives me at times to do things that maybe could be outsourced and done more efficiently, more quickly and ultimately better. But I want to do them myself. So I think a key piece of that among many key pieces is if it's not one of your three things, if it doesn't allow you to be an amplifier, someone else, chances are it does allow them to enact their power word. And it is one of their top three things. Even if you Mm -hmm. think it's something that you hate and how could any human being on the planet earth love doing this? Mm -hmm. I guarantee you there's someone that loves doing it. Right.
3: Right. And then the real question is, is, are they on on my team and do I want to let the company do it or not? And if there's somebody on my team, I'll let the company do it. Right. But if not, it's like, you know what? The company just needs to say no to this. Or maybe it's a new team member we need to bring on to do this great thing.
2: I want to kind of backtrack a little bit, though. So this is pretty buttoned up, right? I mean, I, I like this framework. I'm sitting here taking notes. It's like it's the top three things you would love to do if you're being paid or not. Find a power word that that really exemplifies who you are and what these three things kind of allow you to do. Where would you find that? Or how did you come up with that? It seems very buttoned up and it seems very efficient. I mean, you've even got my gears grinding right now.
3: Yeah, What, what was I, kind of I, the
2: process of you coming up with these like three things you would love to do? I mean, how did you bucket something so big and undefined as a life purpose down to what was, I think, two and a half minutes of explanation.
3: I just literally was not happy with any other answer that anyone else had ever given me. All these convoluted answers about your purposes to solve world hunger or whatever, you know, that you've got some predestined thing of what it's supposed to be. And if you don't, you failed in life. And I just kept praying and like meditating on it. And I just got the answer One day in one of my meditations, I think you're getting a sense here that I like to meditate and get clarity. And when I give myself space to do that, it's amazing the insights I get. I just got the answer is just be happy. And, you know, it goes back to that meditation retreat that I was talking about when I went there with the purpose of saying, hey, you know, how can I have the schedule I've always wanted? And then the answer that I got was all you have to do is make today what you want tomorrow to be. To me, I kind of think that was the first insight I got into the whole be happy thing. Because if you think about it, isn't that really saying be happy today? So I think that was the first glimpse I got into coming to this be happy conclusion. And then, well, how is it that I can be happy? It's like it's it's I'm happiest when I'm doing these things that I enjoy doing no matter what. You know, we've all heard the exercises of what would you do whether anybody paid you or not. So I just kind of put that together with my idea of being happy and that, you know, what if I gave that a, a word? And there are other people, you know, that talk about, you know, giving it a word that I hadn't even heard them talking about it. You know, I didn't get the idea from them, but they've also come to the same conclusion. So it's really cool that as collective consciousness, we're all like starting to come to these conclusions and have ways of articulating it. I just want to help as many people as I can with the idea.
0: Well, it's such a great insight to the clarity that you create when you give yourself space and you step back. And you've shared that was at least the second or third example of just how you can create these really novel breakthrough insights when you actually create some space in your life. And funnily enough, I thought that was a great question as well. I literally made a note to myself to journal about this tomorrow morning because I want to ask the same question to myself and figure out, are there some answers? Are there some things that would come out of that thought exercise that could be really helpful for me? And the truth is, maybe nothing comes out of that journaling exercise or maybe something really awesome comes out of it. But taking... 15 minutes or 20 minutes and journaling on it is a very low risk, high reward way to potentially reap some fantastic benefits out of a really simple thought exercise.
3: Exactly. And you might ask the question tomorrow and you might not get the answer, but your brain will still be noodling on it. Like it, it'll come to you at some point in the near future when you're not even trying to answer it. You might get it tomorrow too. So I don't want to say you won't, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like once we plant these questions to ourselves, we may not get the immediate answer right then. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But like I'd been asking myself that meditation question forever and I never got the answer. But when I went there and like went there with the intention of I'm going to this whole three day event with the intention of solving this question, guess what? I got the answer or when I gave myself the space to get it.
0: I mean, there are questions that I've wrestled with for years and years and years and slowly iterated and found pathways and eventually had some breakthrough insights around. So it's definitely something that you may not get a total breakthrough day one, but you might. But the practice of creating that space, right, and having the ability in your life to step back even just a little bit and say, okay, what's really important? What am I really good at? Where should I be spending my time? Asking these deliberative, contemplative questions as opposed to just being in the trenches 24-7, jumping into battle every day without even thinking about why you're doing it or what you're doing or what you're working towards or whether or not you're happy. That's the reality and that's what most people are doing. And so take the seasons, take the opportunities, and maybe even in today's environment, it could be a great time to really step back and start to think about how can I create a little bit of space to figure out what matters.
3: Absolutely. And it can be so life changing. And the other part of that too, is to always, even when tough times happen, the ebbs and flows of life always happen. Another thing that was transformative in my life was just, I've always had this uncanny way of saying, How can I make this obstacle one of the best things to ever happen to me? I did that after my house fire. The lessons I learned from it were one of the best things that ever happened to me. Probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. So it's like I also encourage everybody listening to any obstacle you have thrown your way that's big and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is gut-wrenching. Ask yourself and say, how can I make this the best thing that ever happened to me? And if you keep asking your subconscious that question – you'll find it even when you don't think it's there. It might not come immediately like we were talking about with the journaling. But if you look for it, you can find that golden nugget of how to reinvent yourself or how to overcome that obstacle.
0: And I mean, the elephant in the room, we'll go ahead and just talk about it for a second, which is as we record this and, and probably when we air this, that maybe not for the listeners in the future that are going to be digesting this. We're in the midst of the coronavirus lockdown. And one of the things I have three or four little personal projects that are just fitness goals, nutrition goals. I mean, I'm planning on emerging from this thing healthier, happier, in better shape than I've ever been in my entire life and trying to use every little edge and every opportunity I can get from the constraints that have been created by this quarantine to emerge better than I went into it.
3: Exactly. So like, if you keep asking yourself, How can I make this the best thing that ever happened to me? Your answers you'll keep getting is, all right, go work out right now, Matt, and go do this and go do that. And you're like, okay, I'm going to do that. Because you'll feel that like pull to do it. Like I felt the pull to keep making these changes because I asked myself that question. I wonder whether I had been led to go to that meditation retreat, whether I'd been led to always be doing experiments in my life, you know, whether I'd be doing all these different things if I didn't keep asking that question to myself. So I think that's a key question to implant in your psyche is how can I make this obstacle one of the greatest things to ever happen to me? Because your brain we'll look for the answer.
0: Yeah, I love that question and that's another great one that I think we could put in the repertoire for people to think about, journal about and implement in your lives as well.
3: Definitely.
2: Who in your life has had the biggest impact on the way you think and like your work in general? And it's someone who's maybe outside of your current circle or network. Whose work or whose advice or whose content that you might not interact with, you know, personally has had the biggest impact on you?
3: You know, there are people that were coming to my mind that are people that I've all personally talked with. I'm trying to think of an example of like, you're talking about like thought leaders or people that maybe I haven't personally met.
2: So for instance, there's a lot of folks like depending on what, challenge I'm faced with in my research on solving that problem, I'll find an author or I'll find someone on YouTube and I'll just completely digest everything that they put out. And oftentimes it's kind of like a phase, but I'll come out of that with like three or four things that just completely change the way that I approach everything. So I guess at the heart of the question, it's kind of like, who would you look up to that you maybe haven't had the chance to interact with?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm inspired and I look up to, you know, people like Bill Gates. You know, I grew up being a Microsoft engineer, so I always admired Bill Gates and the things that he's done and his philanthropy in the world and trying to solve the bigger problems. So, you know, that's an example of someone I admire and going from, you know, changing the world with his software to now working to change the world with the money that he generated from the software. So, that's one example of someone who, you know, I follow. You know, he says so many amazing things even, you know, to this day when he comments on different problems in the world. I just really admire his position on those things. There's some different authors of books that have been transformative in my life. I don't know if that's part of what you're referring to, too. There's a couple books that are just like, wow, that was just so brilliant. And like, think of it every time I think of certain things in my life, you know?
2: So name some of those books for us. That'd be great.
3: <laughs> okay, so, you know, how I talked about, I was the, you know, the workaholic who had my house fire. It's like, you know, saving the unhappy millionaire. You know, <laughs> there I was, the unhappy millionaire as it was all going up in flames. I'm going to do a new book on that in the future, like saving the unhappy millionaire or something like that. <laughs> so,
2: I like that. That's a great yeah. title.
3: Robin Sharma's book, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari is actually about a workaholic lawyer. One of my companies is a law ding. firm. Yeah, exactly. So that one really resonated with me. But even if you're not a lawyer, like the monk who sold his Ferrari is like this great set of principles around discovering that, you know, it's like what really matters in life is not all the money that you make and all the things that you do, but it's about being happy. And like, he doesn't say it in those words, but the essence of the story is all about, you know, having time for yourself and for self-care. And it's like the best self-help summary in the form of a parable that I've Mm -hmm. ever seen in any one book. So yeah, The Monk is by Robin Sharma, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. It's a brilliant story that sucks you into the story, but it's got like a great summary of all the greatest thought leaders and self-improvement things you've heard over the years, all summarized into one parable that you can remember. I just love it. It's a great story. If you buy the audio version, you'll like listen to the whole thing from start to finish because it just sucks you in.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm always looking for a nice audio book to uh, to listen to during runs and random other things. So one last thing, and I think we would be doing a huge disservice not only to ourselves but to the audience if we didn't ask. What's the name of this meditation retreat you went on?
3: It was actually a meditation retreat that a guy named Jesse Elder held. Jesse, E-L-D-E-R. I think he called it prime light meditation. I don't even know if he does these retreats anymore. But Jesse is just a really interesting guy that you know taught me how to be better at meditation. He was doing those retreats. And there was only like eight of us that were there. And it was a really small group, intimate setting. And he just curated a really cool environment. So, so right. thank you, Jesse. Thank if you to happen show. to listen to this, it was awesome. <laughs>
0: We'll throw all that stuff in the show notes for listeners who want to check that out. That book sounds really interesting as well. For listeners who want to take action and start to concretely implement something that we've talked about today, what would be one action item or action step that you would give them to begin their own journey of living a life of purpose and happiness?
3: I would recommend that they do that life purpose exercise that we talked about of brainstorming on those three things that really bring them joy, no matter what, whether they get paid or not, and trying to come up with a power word that summarizes that one word. And I actually heard the word amplifier from Jesse Elder, not at that event, but a different event of his that I went to. He made the comment, I'm an amplifier. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like that gave me goosebumps. When you hear the right word that somebody else says or that you read in a dictionary or wherever... Like it may give you goosebumps. It may not. But in my case, it did. He was just talking about himself in a sentence. And I'm like, holy cow, that's really cool. You know, that was how I found my word. My original word was something else. I forget what it was, but I iterated on it for a while and it wasn't the right word. So my advice to answer your question is do that exercise and come up with a power word 1.0 that really summarizes your life purpose and keep iterating on it until you find a power word that really lights you up. But Use it in your daily life to help you make decisions on, am I going to take on this for the company or for myself or not? Is it in alignment with my life purpose or somebody else's that might be on my team?
0: And Denise, where can listeners find you and your work online?
3: Yeah. So the best websites to find me are my uh, company, vacationeffect.com. That's effect with an E and also denisegosnell.com. But they can find everything on vacationeffect.com. And those that are entrepreneurs, I've got the most resources there for entrepreneurs. They can learn about my book, my podcast, and the other free resources that I have.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all these insights, some great stories and some really fascinating takeaways around how we can be happier and maybe more productive at the same time.
3: Thank you for a great conversation. I had a blast.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the science of success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's m a t t successpodcast.com.